Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's tribute to Robert Conquest, a senior research fellow and scholar curator at Hoover for 28 years who passed away in 2015. A recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2005, Robert Conquest was a renowned historian of Soviet politics and foreign policy. His landmark work, The Great Terror, Stalin's Purge of the Thirties, remains one of the most influential studies of Soviet history more than 35 years after its publication, and has been translated into more than 20 languages. More than a celebrated historian, Conquest was also a talented man of letters, publishing eight volumes of poetry and serving as a literary editor of the London Spectator. In this panel, entitled Robert Conquest Conquers the Soviet Union, we'll hear from Stephen Kotkin, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of history at Princeton University. Kotkin is introduced by the moderator, Eric Waken, director of Hoover's Library and Archives. The panel was recorded on January 25th, 2016. I'm actually going to introduce uh, Professor Kotkin. He's been kind enough to see about few minutes of time to me just so I can say a few words about the amazing material we have in the display case in front to honor uh, Robert Conquest. So I'll just do that for a couple of minutes. Um, many of the items on display you see around the corner there, if you haven't had a look at, were kindly lent to us by Elizabeth Conquest, and I want to thank her for, for allowing us to have these on display. Um, and a lot of the items in the case speak to what we're trying to do today to honor Dr. Conquest. For example, this panel is titled Robert Conquest Conquers the Soviet Union, and it's illustrated by a drawing by Roman Genn, the caricaturist for the National Review, of Robert Conquest with Stalin's head as a trophy on the wall behind him. <laughs> you can see that in there. Um, um, Genn also did another caricature of um, Stalin crushed by a, a copy of the book Harvest of Sorrow, which was just too big to display. Um, and that was one of the many books, as you heard from Dr. Gilgan, our director, that, that um, Robert Conquest wrote. The Great Terror, you can see a copy of the first edition in the display as well. This book that was met with derision by the pro-Soviet left, but held up time and again to attacks, and Professor Kotkin is going to speak about that. Um, Dr. Conquest wrote Harvest of Sorrow while he was here at the Hoover Institution, and we have the good fortune of being able to illustrate not just the finished product, which you can see, but the notes that show the man at work, right, the, the state of his mind as he's writing and putting things together, making the text. And we have just one small example of that in the, in the um, case over there. We also have on exhibit the uh, Ukrainian Order of Yaroslav the Wise that Tom alluded to, which he was awarded for Harvest of Sorrow, as well as some other excellent awards from Poland and Estonia. Bob's work was translated into many, many languages, first as Samizdat, and then in additions after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, you'd also see, from the American perspective, the um, Presidential Medal of Freedom and his CMG, which in Britain they, they call, call me God, the companion, <laughs> the, uh, companion of the most distinguished order of St. Michael and St. George. <laughs> um, the, the, by the way, the um, lady told, mentioned this to me, that the, the, um, the order's motto is um, Auspicium Melioris Ivy. Uh, token of a better age, and I think we can all agree that a better age is what Bob hoped and worked for throughout his life. So moving from that, I also want to say that Robert Conquest was an amazing poet, and some of the things you'll see in the case, in, in fact, I should say that many people think of Robert Conquest as precisely a poet first and a historian second, so it's interesting to see how, how, how we, we, we change it sometimes here. The display table illustrates um, this aspect of his life with a few of the many titles he published. You can see Penultimata, Bloke, song, bloke Lore and Bloke Songs, and New Lines, which Sam Gwynn is going to speak about, um, as well as some of the other books that 
that uh, Dr. Gilligan mentioned. Finally, let me just say a few words about Robert Conquest's influence, about his, his meaning in the lives of others and his presence in the world we live in today. Um, like many of his age, he was exposed to the world through war, exposed to politics through war. He joined the British Army in 1939. In the display case, you can see a picture of him in his uniform shortly after he was commissioned. In 1944, Captain Conquest was flown to Italy, then behind enemy lines to serve as a liaison officer to Bulgarian forces fighting under Soviet command on the third Ukrainian front. And he saw action on the Bulgarian-Macedonian-Greek border. His campaign medals are also displayed in the case. Finally, if you think about it, people who have known war, have lost friends and relatives in war, don't want to see this experience repeated. And Robert Conquest put his knowledge and writing skills to use in ensuring the Cold War did not become hot. Um, he joined the Foreign Office. He worked in the Information Resource Department. And after 10 years, he left the Foreign Office to take up writing full time. In 1975, as some of you may know, he began advising Margaret Thatcher, drafting the first of two speeches that earned her the sobriquet Iron Lady. Thus began a friendship that lasted to the end of her life. In 1978, Robert Conquest sent Margaret Thatcher his just completed present danger, which he, she used as a, as a quote, as quote, the meat of the text, unquote, of an important foreign policy speech she gave. Um, you can see a letter in the case in which Margaret Thatcher wrote to Conquest saying, now that the battle has begun, I shall need your encouragement more than ever. Um, because of his firm stance, his serious and conscientious scholarship, and his principal position, Conquest became a friend to many of the Soviet regime's most principled opponents, among them Vladimir Bukovsky and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And these friendships are also illustrated by photographs in there. I, I really want to thank um, Elizabeth Conquest for lending us some of these exceptional items for display, and I encourage you to take some time to look at, at the man and his material objects in the case, if you can. Now. Changing gears, I have the pleasure of very briefly introducing Professor Kotkin. He told me to keep it brief. Um, in addition to being a Hoover Fellow, Professor Kotkin is the Birkeland Professor of History and International Affairs in the Woodrow Wilson School and the History Department at Princeton University, where he has taught since 1989. He has been conducting research in the Hoover Library and Archives for three decades. The first volume of Professor Kotkin's three-volume biography of the Soviet dictator Stalin Stalin, Paradoxes of Power, was published in 2014. The next volume is out shortly, this year or next year, and the third volume shortly after that. Please welcome Professor Kotkin. It's nice to be home. Uh, I do teach nine months of the year at Princeton University, but as my wife likes to say, I only have to live nine months there. <laughs> and then I get my three months here. In occasional January interlude. Uh, this is called the teaser. Obviously, uh, it doesn't make much sense on the surface of it. How could there be any mystery to the well-known story that Robert Conquest conquered the Soviet Union, but not academia? But there's going to be a little bit of a twist today, I hope. Uh, the way these things work, those of you who are storytellers, or you worked in Hollywood, you know how this works, right? First, you introduce the hero, and the hero is charming, witty, urbane, and you start to like the hero. Then there's the accidental meeting with the future uh, love interest. It gets introduced into the story, they bump into each other, and then you see them obviously coming together at some point. And then, if the storyteller is good, throws a whole bunch of obstacles in the way of the hero. The hero has to overcome triumphantly one obstacle after another, triumphs over every single obstacle, and in the final frame also gets the girl. Right? Uh, 
and if you're lucky, you gross 300 million globally, and then they give you, they green light your art film, and you bankrupt the studio. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's, uh, that's my view of how these things work. So we're gonna get some version of that today, obviously. We're gonna get the hero. We're gonna get the, the love interest, who I believe is moderating the next panel. Um, so he did triumph, he did get the girl, and it is an uplifting story. And if it had been a film, it would have grossed uh, hundreds of millions globally. But there is a version of the story that's uh, not quite exactly like that, and that's what I hope to convey today. I was gonna thank Peter Robinson for, uh, we were up in the lounge upstairs, and Peter said to me, there's gonna be this amazing uh, tribute to Robert Conquest. There's gonna be this great lecture on Sovietology and Conquest, and you have to be there, you can't miss it. And it turns out I'm, I'm giving that lecture. <laughs> Peter is a very clever guy. Now let's be honest, this room is full of people who knew Bob extremely well, and it's also full of people who know the Sovietology field very well. So it's a little bit of an accident that I'm up here uh, launching this conversation, but I hope that we'll hear from everybody out there. The Facebook updating that goes on on the laptops while I'm lecturing. <laughs> and if I don't step out into the audience, I don't know what the sweatpants are going for <laughs> that particular day. Because, you know, students who are paying, well, they're not paying, but you're paying $60,000 for an education, they need to update their Facebook page right then during your lecture, right? They have so many hours of class time, like three hours a week. Okay, I'm trying to warm up here. JetBlue just got me in here a few hours ago. Let's see, first let's do the achievement. So this is gonna be obvious, but I think we need to state this anyway. The Great Terror was obviously Bob's coinage, and it has stuck because it was a much better a description and analysis of what happened, not the great purge, not the various other terms we have, but the great terror. And not only uh, has it stuck, but it came to define that regime in really important ways. And it came early, 1968. Uh, Gulag Archipelago, another defining uh, phrase that stamped this criminal regime and became an international way to identify this regime. As you can see, Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago came after the Great Terror. There have been some other big hits. You know Marx called religion the opiate of the masses, and Raymond Aron called Marxism the opium of the intellectuals. That's been an immortal one. Came early also, Raymond Aron. Uh, Czesław Miłosz, the great poet, a captive mind, also very early in the game. Once again, these are, the, in my view, the greatest hits. If I'm leaving anybody out, it's uh, not to slight them. And then, of course, George Kennan's containment, which is another very important phrase that helped define uh, what the Cold War was about and what the task at hand was. Uh, Bob had a second big phrase that he uh, brought into, immortally brought into the Soviet picture in the Cold War, Harvest of Sorrow which, as you see, is a poetic allusion to a medieval tale. We're not going to have time in my presentation to talk about Harvest of Sorrow. I'm going to focus on Great Terror, but Harvest of Sorrow is also very important about the famine of the early 1930s. 
So, you know, in a nutshell, uh, Bob Conquest really incarnated the Hoover and the Hoover mission. The idea is defining a free society, but also the mobilization of that room behind you, the archives, the anti-communist archives that Herbert Hoover began, and many of you have contributed to over the years, right? People said that the anti-communist archives were just memoirs of defectors, they were just personal reminiscences, they were subjective, they weren't the real truth. Well, it turns out that Bob was able to show how valuable those documents were because a large part of the Great Terror draws upon the anti-communist archives, because the communist archives, they wouldn't show it to them. Bob would have gladly read all the communist archives, and later on, when they did open up and come here, he did read them. But when you were unable to read the communist archives, the way in was to go through systematically, comprehensively, the anti-communist material, and of course, this is the great collection. So he did incarnate the Hoover and the Hoover's mission. Now let's talk a little bit about the reaction. The achievement, we could go on and talk about the achievement at great length. I think we don't have to, uh, if, if you put them up there on a list that says Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, George Kennan, uh, Raymond Aron, I think pretty much you've covered the achievement part. But in, in, I'll certainly have more to say if there are questions in the question period. But let's talk about the reaction, which is what I want to focus on. So. There are a lot of um, people who came into Soviet studies because they were on the left, and here are the actual reviews of Bob Conquest's book in 1968. John Barber, still to this day a close friend of mine, certainly uh, considers himself a leftist, and you can see him praising, <coughs> 1968, praising the great terror to the skies. Same thing, Alexander Rabinowitch, not a great friend of mine, but also a luminary in the field, and praising 1968, the original edition, praising conquests to the skies. Right, I'm an empiricist, as you can see. I believe you go to the facts. David Jurasky in the nation, the nation praising conquest to the skies. Right? So it's a bit of a mystery. At least it looks like a bit of a mystery. Here we have the academic left in the 1960s praising conquests book, which is what we would not necessarily expect based on the usual story. I could have given more than just these three. These are representative, but I have a full list. I've got everyone who ever reviewed the book in my files. Then it turns out that there are a lot of people who weren't on the left. In fact, they outnumbered the leftists in the 1960s in Soviet studies. Donald Treadgold, American Historical Review, praising conquest. John Armstrong, Russian Review, praising conquest. Alec Nov, Soviet Studies, Praising Conquest. Uh, G.H. Bolsover, the director of the Slavonic School in London, right, in their periodical Praising Conquest. And of course, Bertram Wolf here at the Hoover in Slavic Review. So these are, these are the major journals at the time in 1968. And all of them are written by people who are not leftists, and all of them are highly praiseful of Robert Conquest. We could go on. Believe me, there's a lot more than just what I could fit on this slide, even in the microscopic print that you can't see. George Cannon in the New York Times Book Review, A Rave, 1968. William Henry Chamberlain, Wall Street Journal, A Rave, 1968. Edward Crankshaw, 
the observer. So it shows you it's both sides of the Atlantic, a rave, 1968. Alexander Gershenkron, New York Review of Books, a rave, 1968. So I think, I hope, at least I've proven to you that we have a bit of a mystery here, which is to say, where is the reaction? Where's the academic left condemnation of Bob's book? And the answer is, in the 1960s, academia was not predominantly leftist. This is something we forget. More professors were hired in the 60s and 70s than in all previous American history combined. The baby boomer generation, I think some of us may be part of that, came into higher education in the 60s and 70s, and higher education just expanded radically. And I use that word in many ways. It just so happens that that was the time of the Vietnam War and the protest against Vietnam. And so the wave of people who entered academia, remember academia is generational, the wave of people who entered academia predominantly in the 70s began the heavy leftist coloring of academia. So when the Great Terror came out in 68, it was a different landscape from what it would become. You, if, uh, whether you're pro or anti-Vietnam War is up to you, but I got to tell you, it has given us a very big legacy in the academy that we're still living with today. In the 1970s, however, even after the wave, Bob was in favor, including in Soviet studies. I didn't do all the citations here, but I could provide the empirical evidence to show that in the 70s he was also in favor. And that's because the initial wave of leftists in Soviet studies who entered the academy had an agenda. And their agenda was that Stalin was a betrayal of the revolution. Stalin was evil. Stalin was a usurpation. And therefore, when Bob went through showing Stalin's crimes, they had no trouble with that because they were hoping, right, to shield Lenin from any relationship to Stalin. And Lenin was still good, and 1917 was still good, and detente was really important, and Stalin's criminality was not an issue for them. So they cheered Bob on the initial wave of leftists who came into the academy in the Vietnam era, in the detente era, had no trouble with Bob's portrayal of Stalin's criminality. It fit, as I said there, 1917 and Lenin being good and Stalin being bad, usurpation, betrayal. So in some ways you could say that, you know, the academic leftists in the 70s, and by the way, these are accomplished people, and many of them are quite good historians. We're talking uh, about people political views. We're not talking about whether the quality of their work is good or bad, right? Some people that I consider staunchly conservative write very bad history, and some people I consider uh, to be leftists write very excellent history. We're just talking about the reception in the leftist academy of Bob's work, right? Which is a political question, partly. So they rejected what was called the totalitarian model, but as I said, they accepted that Stalin's rule was evil. They just rejected any idea that Stalin came from Lenin, let alone that Stalin came from Marx. Therefore, when Bob piled up the corpses, they cheered him on, as I said. However, 
when Bob began to say, as he did from the beginning, that actually this regime was evil from the get-go, and it goes back to Marx, then they went silent. They omitted discussion of this in their reviews of Bob's work, or they chided him for this false continuity that he was uh, attempting to portray between Stalin and Lenin. So you could say, not all, obviously, but many of the 1970s academics, right, praised Bob for the wrong reasons. That is to say, they took part of his agenda, but not the part that was most deeply meaningful to him. The most deeply meaningful part to him was the criminality of the regime from the onset of communism in general. Okay. So the furious assault in the academy on Bob's work began really only in the 1980s. As I said, through the 1970s, he was still in favor. But in the 1980s, things changed. There was an upheaval or a schism on the left. I entered the academy, I, I uh, entered the PhD program at Berkeley in 1981. And I finished in 1988, so I spent the Reagan presidency at, uh, at the, on the Berkeley campus not originally in Soviet studies, but coming around to Soviet studies, so I experienced some of this firsthand, and others in the room uh, did as well. There was a kind of, believe it or not, Maoist-inspired cultural revolution inside Soviet studies. People for whom, uh, the, as the 70s went on, the left wasn't radical enough for them. They were more radical. There was a bit of a generational revolt. And there was the Maoist cultural revolution going on in China. There was a lot of ferment in academy in general and including in Soviet studies. It wasn't all of Soviet studies, but there was inside Soviet studies a Maoist cultural revolution. And they also rejected the old totalitarian model, but they didn't accept it for the Stalin period. They didn't say Stalin's rule was criminal the way that their predecessor leftists of the 70s had said. These 80s people, right, were not talking about a betrayal. They were talking about a fulfillment, Stalin fulfilling Lenin, right? Okay, so there were caricatures of Bob's work, which were produced by the following people. Once again, I don't produce the quotes here, but I could do all the quotes necessary. I have big files on all this work and what they said. Arch Getty, Robert Thurston, William Chase, Lynn Viola, Hiroaki Kuramiya, Gabor Rittisborn, Wendy Goldman, Sheila Fitzpatrick, all except Sheila Fitzpatrick remain in the academy and have tenure. She's a retired but still very eminent and very prolific author. Um, and they make, you know, you could, if you, if you read their work, you can smell the burning straw right there as you turn the pages, right? Everything is made out to be so simplistic and stupid that conquest couldn't possibly have been right. right? They make out a, a caricature of his work and then they critique it and they say, look, look how sm much smarter we are. This is not something that's peculiar to them, obviously, but it's something that, as I say, I could show empirically. There was a lot of unintentionally hilarious stuff that they wrote. There was a big debate, for example. They accused Bob of not allowing that people were happily married in the Soviet terror. You see, because Bob paints a grim, dark picture. And then he conceded in a, in a debate with them. He said, I do believe that people were sometimes happy living under Stalin. I do believe that they fell in love. I do believe that they married. I do believe, et cetera, et cetera. 
And the person who had accused him of not believing it said, look, you see, he's already conceded our point. <laughs> That's what the debate was like. And, and by the way, in the main journals of the profession. Okay. So this was the, these were the arguments that they had. The arrest and death numbers were not so high. Bob exaggerated, meaning if 3 million people instead of 5 million or 13 million instead of 20 million died, that Bob was wrong, that this is an exaggeration, right? So the death, not so high. It was all far more complicated. This recurs and recurs and recurs again in what they wrote. The purges were really about combating disobedience and drunkenness, or even premature efforts. A book just came out in 2007 about how the purges were premature efforts to introduce democracy under Stalin. I kid you not. There was upward social mobility. There were thousands of new factories. There was education. These were the arguments that they put forward. This is what's called Hitler-built highways. If you know the Nazi literature, there's a, a Nazi literature about Hitler-built highways, the positive things that occurred under <coughs> Hitler's rule. But you, you, very few people can get away with the Hitler-built highways argument because Hitler is beyond the pale, literally. Whereas with Stalin, it was perfectly okay to make these arguments and to get tenure as a result of these arguments. <laughs> so here's the flow chart. This is the org chart. And uh, so this is the left, this side, which should be your right. Um, uh, it's, it's on the right of the, my right of the slide, politically. The totalitarianism argument, continuity between Marx, Lenin, and Stalin. We obviously had conquests. We had pipes at Harvard. Richard Pipes, we had Martin Malia at Berkeley, and many of you know that Martin Malia was my thesis advisor at Berkeley. And then we had the so-called revisionists, that's what they call themselves, revisionism. And the first was 1917 as a workers' revolution, and then the 1920s as a supposedly quasi-market viable alternative to the Stalin period. This is your 1970s generation. And they said, yes, yeah, Stalin was criminal and evil, but 1917 was great and the 1920s were better and viable. Then along came that Maoist cultural revolution and Stalin's 1930s upheaval, the famine, the terror, was just radicalism from below. This is once again, citation from their work. And so you had a very curious thing. These people here, the 1970s leftists, agreed with conquest pipes in Malia that Stalin was evil, and so these leftists defended conquest against these leftists. Because these said that Stalin was continuity with the 1930s, but not in a bad way, in a good way, because it was radicalism from below. So you had this schism on the left where the generations broke and the interpretation broke, and the Maoist-inspired Cultural Revolution people were uh, criticized by their fellow leftists because they said there was continuity between Marx, Lenin, and Stalin, whereas uh, that was the totalitarian thesis, but the totalitarian thesis was continuity in a negative moral sense, and theirs was continuity in a positive sense. So this is the sort of field of Soviet studies in very simplified form. To repeat, there are a lot of good uh, historians who are out there who did really good work and I rely on their work in my own work and you can be a good historian and disagree politically right so th th this is not to denigrate all of their work this is to explain the reaction to Bob's work over time 
Okay, so we have a second mystery now. And the second mystery, as I said, was that the 1970s academic leftists continued to defend Bob against other leftists who came up in the academy. I witnessed a lot of this firsthand. Right? And then you would think, okay, fine, all of these academic games, surely 1991 happens, the Soviet archives open up, game over. Right? There's no way you can continue to argue these things because all the documentation that had been classified secret is now out. But no. Despite the opening of the archives, you can still encounter significant criticisms of Conquest's work in the academic journals today. And the reason is the numbers game. Bob, quote, exaggerated. It was not 20 billion. It was really only 13 to 15 million. You see? Once again, you know, I don't, I mean, the numbers are big numbers to me. And if you're off by this or that amount, it's still a very big number, but that's where they argue against him. The other thing is that they say, oh, you know, it's not just the Soviet Union. People also died in America. There is also American imperialism. There was Native American Indians, slavery here in America, Vietnamese. So don't get up on your high moral horse. I, I've heard this argument often to my own face. And third, and the biggest argument, is that Bob and scholars like Bob were stuck in a Cold War mentality. This is the most often repeated phrase I've heard about my own work, that I am stuck in a Cold War mentality. And I hear this about Bob's work all the time. What does that mean? To them it means, you know, the Cold War was some type of misunderstanding. The Cold War might have even been a Western plot. To them, the Cold War was not a necessary confrontation of evil. Roosevelt wanted to cooperate, Stalin wanted to cooperate, but Truman you know, was provocative, or the Marshall Plan was provocative, or whatever it might be, it was American provocation, American behavior that produced a misunderstanding that led us into the Cold War, which all could have been avoided, and those of you still making these arguments are stuck in a Cold War mentality. And this is the deepest argument, along with the numbers game and along with the, the America get off your high moral horse. This is the deepest argument that con continues to inspire uh, a refusal to accept Bob's work in parts of the academy. So we have what, in conclusion, we have a paradox. When he first published The Great Terror in 1968, Bob was praised. Right on the eve of the Soviet collapse, that's when he was first attacked en masse. Then the archives open up in the late 80s and early 90s, and yet he's still not fully accepted in the academy. And a lot of his critics, academia is generational, a lot of his critics remain in positions of authority. They continue to train PhD students and they make decisions on tenures and awards. Not exclusively, but they're a very big part of the academy. And so attacks on Bob came late, but they're deeply entrenched despite the opening of the communist archives and the mountains of new evidence, and that's the situation we're in today, right? The resistance is broader than the Maoist-inspired cultural revolutionaries of the 80s. And once again, a great number of people accept Bob's work. This is not about the fact that he is not accepted. This is about the fact that yet, how to explain that there still is significant resistance to Bob's findings, in a broad sense, not detail. 
So the nub of the resistance, I would say, is the dismissal of the Cold War mentality. So it's very, very important that we understand and that we continue to prove and continue to do research on the necessity of the Cold War and how the Cold War was not a misunderstanding, not an accident. And this is where I'll conclude. This is Bob uh, on his return visit uh, to Moscow in the late 80s. Right? You can see they say that we were Cold Warriors. Yes, and a bloody good show too. A lot of people weren't Cold Warriors and so much the worse for them. So uh, that's the attitude that he had and I believe that's the attitude we also must embrace today. Anyway, thank you for your time. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.